Turn in our Bibles to read from Genesis 17. Book of Genesis, chapter 17. We have here God confirming his covenant with Abraham and then also establishing the importance of circumcision. And we look at this morning, Lord's Day 26, which treats baptism. We have here God's explanation of circumcision, and we understand circumcision was replaced by baptism. Genesis 17, we hear God's word. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me, and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shalt thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, Every man-child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face, and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child born unto him that is an hundred years old? And shall Sarah, that is ninety years old, bear? And Abraham said unto God, O that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed. And thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard him. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful. And will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. 
But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God had said unto him. And Abraham was ninety years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael his son. All the men of his house, bought in the house, born in the house and bought with money of the stranger, were circumcised with him. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. In connection with this passage, we have Lord's Day 26, found in the back of our Psalters on page 14. We have question and answers 69, 70, and 71. Lord's Day 26. How art thou admonished and assured by holy baptism that the one sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is of real advantage to thee. Thus, that Christ appointed this external washing with water, adding thereto this promise, that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit from all the pollution of my soul, that is, from all my sins, as I am washed externally with water, by which the filthiness of the body is commonly washed away. What is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? It is to receive of God the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by his sacrifice upon the cross, and also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ, that so we may more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblameable lives." Where has Christ promised us that he will as certainly wash us by his blood and spirit as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, which is thus expressed, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This promise is also repeated where the scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we noted last week that God ordained the preaching and the sacraments as means to make us more attractive spiritually. God has instituted the sacraments as means of grace by which we might be graced with God's goodness and God's mercy and in that way, be made more spiritually attractive to him. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two sacraments that Christ instituted within his church, and they're used with the word to strengthen our faith in that one sacrifice of Jesus. We grow in our union with God through the sacraments. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism approaches both baptism and the Lord's Supper from the same perspective. It's striking to note that the same questions are asked regarding each of the sacraments. So that in Lord's Day 26, we have in question 69 
essentially the same question that's asked in question 75 of Lord's Day 28. But here it's applied to baptism, there it's applied to the Lord's Supper. And you can go right on through. Question 70, what is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? Question 76, what is it then to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ? Question 71, where is Christ promised that he will as certainly wash us? Question 77, where has Christ promised that he will as certainly feed and nourish? And so on. So that the catechism now is approaching both sacraments in a similar manner. Looking at the symbolism, looking at the essence, looking at the institution of each one, and then looking at the errors that are rejected, the grace that's given, and with regard to the Lord's Supper, the proper partakers, and with baptism, the infant's that are to be baptized. So we look at all of these different aspects relating to the sacraments, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. The essence of baptism is that we are buried with Christ and raised again unto life in him. Two things occur, and it's important for us to keep our focus always in those two things when talking about baptism. We're washed, we're cleansed, but then we're incorporated into the family of God. How can we be part of God's family apart from being washed and being cleansed of our sins? And so baptism signifies both. It signifies we are washed, and as those now that are washed, we are brought into fellowship with the triune God, living in the joy and wonder of his presence and of his communion. Note the emphasis on Christ throughout this Lord's Day not only, but throughout the treatment of the sacraments. Our focus this morning is on baptism, but as we focus on baptism, as always, we focus on Christ. As baptism and the Lord's Supper direct our focus to that one sacrifice once offered on Calvary. And so we don't go home saying we heard a sermon merely on baptism. We hear a sermon that, Lord willing, is about Christ and the wonder of the faith that he works in our hearts by which we lay hold on his one sacrifice. We look at the holy baptism, the institution, the reality, and the assurance. From the beginning, God instituted circumcision as the sign of the covenant. And that's established here in the passage that we read in Genesis 17. Verse 10, This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Circumcision was a sign of entrance into the covenant and a picture of the forgiveness of sins. On the eighth day, the child was to be circumcised, and God establishes that now with regard to Abraham. Circumcision was the radical cutting away of a part of the flesh of the boys. Blood was shed, and it pointed to the shed sacrifice of Jesus Christ as he would shed his blood for the sake of of the salvation of his people. The cutting off of that flesh signified the casting away of sin and of the body of sin. So that it was a picture of one's sins being cut off now and cast away. Circumcision was meant to demonstrate that God's promise was not just with this person, but also with his seed. And that's why God chose the organ of, rep- of reproduction as the organ of which would be used for circumcision. The seed would pass through that piece of flesh, so to speak. And so the children that were born of that man 
would be included in the sphere of the covenant. To be taught, to be trained as those who were God's children. And those who also had to receive then the sign of the covenant. God committed himself by that to gathering his church from believers and their seed. And God now comes to Abraham and demonstrates that that wonder is not just Abraham and his physical seed. It also pertains to all of the individuals that have a place in his household. His servants bought with money and born in the household. Now whether or not each one of them was elect was determined by God. And that was unknown to parents, even as it remains unknown today. But that was not the determining factor regarding who was to be circumcised. God commanded all the sons, all the servants had to be circumcised. And their circumcision was on the basis of God's promise to keep his covenant with Abraham and with his generations. Now the fact, and we'll look at that with the reality, that that circumcision did not accomplish anything with regard to those who were not God's children is evident from the nature of the covenant. Again and again, in Genesis 17 we read, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. If it's an everlasting covenant, it has to be particular. It can't be to everyone then that's circumcised and to everyone that's baptized because some of them are going to forsake. And they're not going to continue in fellowship and communion with God. The covenant either is an unconditional covenant established only by God with his elect, or it's a conditional covenant that's broken by men. And the fact that Genesis 17 emphasizes its everlasting character makes clear it has to be an unconditional covenant that's established by God with those whom God has ordained to save to all eternity. So that that covenant will not and cannot be broken. Now, circumcision was an outward sign that involved a deeply spiritual and religious act. God came to his people with a promise, I will be your God. You will be my people. And this promise was embraced by faith. Abraham laid hold on this promise. He rejoiced in God's goodness and God's mercy and God's promise to him. And God's promise included not just parents, but God made clear. Children are also included in this promise. I will be a God unto you and to your seed. Where that promise was scorned, where that promise was mocked, where people walk contrary to God's will and God's commandments, God then cut them off. And God didn't just cut that individual off or two. He cut them off in their generations. And that was established again by God very clearly throughout this history of Abraham. Now what was God doing? God also was doing something else here with circumcision. He was separating his people from the world. To be circumcised was to be part of God's camp. It was to be part of those who were the people of God. Within that camp now, there always were those who were not elect. Regardless of that fact, the males were circumcised on the basis of God's promise to gather his church in their generations. And these individuals now were included in the, we would call, sphere of the covenant. Even though some were not actually in that covenant because they were not true children of God, they were in the camp of God. 
They were in the sphere of that covenant. The uncircumcised were outside. They were not in that camp. And Genesis 17 verse 14 here establishes that very clearly. The uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. And not only was that one put out, his offspring as well then was excluded. They were not counted as those who were part of God's kingdom and God's covenant. Now it's true that among those who were uncircumcised, there yet were some who were God's elect. And in time, God would rescue them out of and from among those who were the uncircumcised and would incorporate them into his kingdom and into his covenant in his good time. Now, baptism was ordained by God to replace circumcision. And we have that taught us in Colossians 1, or Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. In Colossians 2, the apostle here is establishing the reality of which circumcision and baptism are a picture. And he states, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. God demonstrating there that already in the Old Testament, circumcision was not merely enough. More was necessary. It was not enough just to have one's foreskin cut. That circumcision pointed to something else. It it pointed to the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And God established then in the new dispensation that the shedding of blood was no longer necessary. Now, the sprinkling of water took its place. Jesus had shed his blood. And shedding that blood on Calvary fulfilled the need for the shedding of blood in circumcision. No more blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And now, baptism ordained by God and instituted by God as a sign signified the same thing as circumcision. And that's why the apostle is able to link them together here. Ye are circumcised even though some of these were not physically circumcised. There were Gentiles, perhaps here, that had never been circumcised as to the physical act. But the apostle says, by the inspiration of the Spirit, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. In other words, baptism and circumcision pointing to the same glorious reality and truth. And God marvelously and wondrously giving that sign of the shedding of sin through Jesus Christ. Now when was baptism instituted? We would say Jesus instituted baptism at the time of his ascension into heaven. That was when baptism was given God's divine appointment And it was set as that which the church was to practice. A sacrament can't be viewed as a sacrament apart from God's divinely establishing it. Some view baptism as nothing more than just a bare sign. 
of no significance. But baptism, because it was instituted by Christ, is a sacrament and a sign as well as a seal. And when did Jesus do this? The Catechism directs us to that reality in question 71. In the institution of baptism, and then it quotes from Acts from Matthew 28, verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The church was commanded, go out and baptize. Give that sign in order that those who believe and their generations might have that sign pointing them to Christ and the victory that was in Jesus Christ. Water baptism was chosen as the quality of cleansing that it provided. And just as water washes physically, so Christ's blood has washed us spiritually. Now, baptism was designed then as the sign of the washing of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, the renewing in holiness according to the Holy Spirit. And we look at the significance that God gives to circumcision and the significance that God now gives to baptism, and we see the same. The same are the, the recipients are the same, believers and their seed. And the thing signified is the same. It signifies the washing of blood through Jesus Christ. The question then is raised, what about the baptism that took place before the ascension? Already baptism was being practiced in the early church prior to the time of the ascension. Jesus, we read, baptized in a few isolated incidents, but especially John the Baptist was busy baptizing. And so what are we to make of John the Baptism and his baptizing? John stood in the era of circumcision, but he was in the doorway between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as such, he becomes the one who is between. His baptism was for the remission of sins. That's laid out in Matthew 3, verses 5 and 6. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. The baptism of John was the same as later the baptism of the apostles would be described as. It was a baptism unto the remission of sins. It pointed to Christ and the washing of of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so John is baptizing, looking ahead to the event that would take place, whereas the apostles baptized, looking back to the reality of the cross and the wonder of what Christ had done. But as John stood in that doorway, John's baptism is the same as that of the apostles. And even Jesus and John baptized together for a time. John even baptized Jesus. Now that raises even more questions in our minds sometimes. Why would Jesus have to be baptized if baptism is a picture of the forgiveness of sins and Jesus had no sin? And we know the answer is Jesus was bearing our sins. And as Jesus bore our sins then, his baptism points to the wonder and the marvel of his own sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sin. We understand why John said initially, I don't have to baptize you. If anything, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus insisted, no, 
you need to baptize me. And you have to do it because I am the one bearing the sins of my people. And therefore, Jesus' baptism pointed to his own sacrifice for forgiveness. It fulfilled all righteousness. There comes up a question, though, about John's baptism in Acts 19. And some cast then John's baptism into doubt on the basis of that passage. In John 19, I mean in Acts 19. In Acts 19, the apostles come across some individuals who had been baptized by John. And we read of this in verses 1 through 6. It came to pass that while Apollos was in Corinth and Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said to them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now some take verse 5 to mean that they were rebaptized, but it's important to note that that's not the significance of the original language there. In verse 5, the past tense of the verb is actually used with regard to were baptized. And literally, the idea there is, and hearing, they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that hearing from the apostle the nature and significance of John's baptism in verse 4, the conclusion was they had been. And so now they're not rebaptized, but now Paul lays his hands upon them, and now they receive the Holy Spirit. So that baptism began with John the Baptist and was divinely sealed for the entire church by Jesus' command at the time of his ascension. And as we noted, baptism and circumcision, according to Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, have the same significance. Baptism is, replaced, is the replacement of circumcision. And the reality of circumcision is the same reality of which baptism points. Christ and forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. Circumcision was an entrance into the covenant. It was a sign of the forgiveness of sins. It was a sign. Not everyone who was circumcised again was elect. But all who were circumcised were included in the sphere of the covenant. Baptism, similarly, is a sign of entrance into the covenant and the forgiveness of sins. It's not itself the forgiveness of sins. It's a sign. Not all who are baptized are elect. But all are included again in the sphere of the covenant. The uncircumcised Colossians were considered circumcised because they were baptized. There's one promise, one promise that's sealed both by baptism and circumcision, and both point to the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ by faith alone. Now, baptism then, importantly, does not necessarily follow chronologically after one's salvation. Nor does one's salvation follow chronologically immediately after one is baptized. 
the power and the efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment when it's administered. And that's important for us to understand. That's powerfully brought out here in the illustration of Abraham. Abraham had been a believer for many, many years. He's now 99 years old. And only now in his later life is he given the sign. There are those who experience baptism as adults, as Abraham experienced circumcision as adults. There are times when that baptism can be very moving for an individual, coming out after some kind of a dramatic conversion experience. But that doesn't mean that that's always going to be the experience for one with regard to adult baptism. Nor does it mean that that's the only way God intends for the sacrament to be administered. The sacrament of baptism and God's grace are no less meaningful or significant when placed on a child in the presence of his or her parents, grandparents, fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. We think of the way that the word is heard and the way in which we receive the word. The word is preached and sometimes an individual sits under the word for years without that word really having much of an impact on that one. And then all of a sudden, God so works regeneration in the heart of that one. And now the word has significance. The word has meaning. And that one experiences conversion. A person may grow up in a Christian home, hearing Bible studies, going to Christian school, but not become conscious of the wonder of their salvation until quite a bit older. But on that basis, we don't conclude then that we're going to withhold baptism from them until they give evidence of faith. God insists. Baptism, as with circumcision, is to be administered to believers and to their seed. The personal experience of an individual does not become the doctrine of the church. And that's what increasingly happens with baptism. Just because the conversion and then baptism of one is an intensely emotional experience, now that becomes the expectation for all. And then some who haven't experienced it that way look back and they're kind of ashamed. They think, well, I was baptized when, the, when I was a baby. I don't really remember anything about it. And perhaps I'm lacking something then. Whereas the confessions, as we have quoted, emphasize repeatedly that it's not something that needs to be repeated. The fact that baptism is given once as a sign is sufficient. Just as we're not regenerated multiple times throughout the course of our life, so also baptism it is administered once. Now Abraham was already a believer, and yet he was circumcised. Romans 4 verse 11 tells us that Abraham's circumcision was a seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. Genesis 15, verse 6, if we go back a couple chapters, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So that Abraham was circumcised after he believed, similar to those who are circumcised, who are baptized as adults, after having come to faith. But what did God command Abraham then to do? In Genesis 17, he's commanded now to administer that sign to his seed. And he's to include his servants as well as Ishmael. 
Abraham then circumcises Ishmael. And we read that Ishmael during this time was about 13 years old. Later on, he's going to circumcise Isaac at eight days, even though Isaac has no indication of any kind of faith. Circumcision still a sign of the righteousness that comes by faith. But since there's no simultaneous relationship, the sign is given first, and then later in life, the blessing of the sign and evidence of God's faithfulness is embraced by faith. And it's evident in that one who confesses his or her righteousness in Jesus Christ alone. A baby is baptized now. And months and years in the future comes to faith and lays hold upon the wonder of the reality of which their baptism was a sign. So it was with Isaac. Isaac was circumcised and only later gave indication of that faith. God continues to insist that the sacrament be given to believers and to their seed. The essence of the sign was never abolished, but the form of it changed. God's grace is the same, even though the sign now is different. Now, what is the reality to which this sign points? And the confessions direct us to that. We have in The Belgic Confession, Article 34, if we look at about the middle of the quote there, therefore the ministers on their part administer the sacrament and that which is visible, but our Lord giveth that which is signified by the sacrament, namely the gifts and invisible grace, washing, cleansing, and purging our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving unto us a true assurance of his fatherly goodness, putting on us the new man and putting off the old man with all his deeds. The Catechism states it's to receive of God the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood. 1 Peter 3 verse 21 talks about that wonder as well. And again, what do we need? As you and I stand before the living God, we need to be washed. Our sins need to be forgiven. And the washing of baptism is closely related to the cutting off of the circumcision. The bad, the sin, has to be cut off and removed. And so water is now used as the sign, while the inward truth then is the cleansing, the washing of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus' perfect sacrifice has so cleansed me that my sins now are forgiven. Every last one of them, washed away, atoned for. Payment has been made. And that's the reality of which my baptism then is a picture. This washing and this cleansing so complete that it brings me into fellowship with the living God. How can one know communion with God? God is holy. He's righteous. And God now washes me through the blood of Jesus Christ and incorporates me into fellowship and communion with himself. We're baptized into the name of, that is, into the family, into the life of the living God. Consecrated to Christ, risen with him in newness of life. The figures that are used for baptism emphasize this important reality of which it's a picture. 
the flood in 1 Peter 3, verse 21, and then the Red Sea in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 and 2. The flood, just as the flood, the water of the flood, separated now the people of God who were in the ark from the wicked world. And just as the water of the flood destroyed the wicked world that then was and destroyed all the wicked people, so the water of baptism distinguishes the people of God from the world. And it cleanses all wickedness. Now we understand, even from that picture, the fact that, does that mean then that those who were in the ark were completely cleansed of all sin? No. Sin yet remained within their nature. And so it is with us. We're washed. We're cleansed. And yet, until we die, we yet continue to do battle against that old man of sin. And God, therefore, gives us then repeatedly to witness the sacraments so that repeatedly our faith is drawn to Christ. And in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our challenges, we're looking to Him. And we're reminded of the victory and the cleansing, the complete cleansing that is ours through Jesus Christ. Just as Noah and his family were saved by water, the believer is saved by that water, which is a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. Think of the Red Sea. The Red Sea separated the Israelites from the bondage and the wickedness of Egypt. The Israelites were separated and then they were saved by that water. That water becomes the occasion by which the wicked are destroyed. Sin is destroyed. So wonderful is this cleansing. The reality of the cleansing that is ours in Jesus Christ, that as a result, the child of God now is able to be united to Jesus Christ and renewed in Him. We abide in Him. He lives in us by His Spirit. And we have the blessed assurance, my sins, my sinfulness, it's been atoned for. He made the sacrifice on my behalf. And as one then, whose sins are atoned for, He brings us into the fellowship of the living God. The Catechism says to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that we more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. As those cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we're brought into God's covenant and we want to be thankful. We desire to live unto Him. Our lives are transformed. Whereas before we were selfish, we were living for ourselves, pursuing our own will, the idols that we would establish. Now God delivers us and God brings us into the wonder and the joy of life with the triune God and living unto Him. We're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're received into the fellowship of the living God. And this incorporation, which is signified by baptism, is experienced by faith. The sacraments have no benefit apart from faith. Faith lays hold upon this wonder. Faith lays hold on the cross. Faith lays hold upon the marvelous work of God by which he's brought me into communion and fellowship with the living God. And faith gives me the blessed assurance I'm forgiven. And God is my father. And as my father, he's taken me into his family and nothing can separate me from that love. And he will keep me and he will preserve me now and to all eternity. The obligation then to a new life 
flows from that gift of God by which God gives us his spirit and gives us that life, infusing new qualities into our will, making us desire the things that are good, the things that are lovely. God commanding us to work out that salvation with fear and trembling, which he is working within us. Through baptism, we're given the ground, we're given the reason why you belong to Jesus Christ and why you now are able to live lives of thankfulness before him. From all eternity, he chose you, but in time, he gave you his own son and the basis of his perfect work. You now are separated from the wicked and you now are brought into the camp of God and you are now to live in communion and fellowship with him alone. Cleansed and incorporated, consecrated to God so that more and more we die unto sin, more and more we live unto obedience and faithfulness. And those words are not directed to one who is living in sin and finding joy in that sin. Those words are directed to the one who sometimes, due to weakness, falls into sin. And we're inclined to despair. We look at ourselves and we think, how could I do that? How could I not be thankful? I ought to be grateful for what God has done for me. And yet, look at how ungrateful I can be. And look at how sinful I am. And we're not to think then that all is lost. We're not to think that that's indication that the devil is having the upper hand and that he is going to bring about our destruction. We're reminded, you belong to Jesus Christ. And you serve a God of mercy who delights to forgive, who delights to show that mercy and that love. And your salvation is anchored in him. It's not dependent upon you, your repentance, your struggle against sin, but in the eternal covenant of God by which God has taken you and joined you now to his own son by a wonder of his grace. And he will preserve you and he will keep you to all eternity. Again, an everlasting covenant. What a glorious word. I will establish with you, God says to Abraham, my covenant in your generations for an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant is one that goes forever. It's one that can't be broken. And God says, I've now taken you and I pledge that love for you so that you now will be preserved and kept to all eternity because I've taken you into that everlasting communion with me. By faith, we lay hold on that reality. And by faith, we believe I am cleansed My sins are forgiven me through the blood of Jesus Christ so that I am brought into fellowship with the living God, with the Holy One Himself. And not only are my outward sins washed away, but the very depravity of my nature has been cleansed so that I now stand before God, believing that I am righteous in Jesus Christ. That's what we read about Abraham, that Abraham believed that righteousness that was his. In chapter 15, 6, and he believed in the Lord and he counted to him for righteousness. And again, we read that with regard to God's interactions with him in the book of Galatians. God working in our hearts, that blessed assurance, I am righteous. And in him, I know that victory. And I live then before him in the privilege 
of one who's been born again into the fellowship and communion of Jehovah God. Now, blessed, that gives us blessed assurance. And God works that assurance in our hearts. By faith, we lay hold on this reality. The blessing is received by faith. One without faith was circumcised, might have been baptized, but there's no cleansing. As that one grows up and never experiences faith, that outward baptism, that outward circumcision accomplishes nothing. But making them guilty before God. They know better. They were brought up within the sphere of the covenant so that their baptism, their circumcision, leaves them without an excuse. Those observing the sacrament that don't exercise faith receive no automatic benefit. There's no grace. Faith directs us to Christ. And faith is a gift from God. And God works that faith in the hearts of his children so that when we observe the sacrament, By faith we believe, I have been washed, I have been cleansed. As fully as this morning my hands got dirty and I washed them with water, so I have been cleansed of all of my filth and iniquity through the blood of Jesus Christ. And every believer is reminded, God's promise is sure. That promise is from everlasting to everlasting in Jesus Christ alone. And he will preserve you, he will keep you. And he brings us into fellowship with himself so that we know that communion and we know that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's the blessed assurance that the catechisms also, catechisms speaks of not only, but the creeds do. We read in the Belgian Confession, Article 15, toward the end, not that they should rest securely in sin, but that a sense of this corruption should make believers often to sigh desiring to be delivered from this body of death. That is, God makes it so that that battle becomes more vexing and more distressful for us. Constantly we're fighting against sin. And he works in us then more and more that desire to be delivered. That's a sign of God's work of sanctification and a sign of faith. That God works in us that desire increasingly to be delivered from this body of death and know the fullness of that fellowship that is ours in Christ. The second Helvetic, under the section what it means to be baptized, in the middle of that paragraph, baptism therefore calls to mind and renews the great favor God has shown to the race of mortal men. For we are all born in the pollution of sin and are the children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, freely cleanses us from all our sins by the blood of his Son, And in him adopts us to be his sons and by a holy covenant joins us to himself and enriches us with various gifts that we might live a new life. All these things are assured by baptism. For inwardly they are regenerated, purified, and renewed by God through the Holy Spirit. And outwardly we receive the assurance of the greatest gifts in the water by which also those great benefits are represented and as it were, sat before our eyes to be beheld. We see the cross. We see the wonder of God's love for us. While we were yet sinners, he sent his own son in order to lay down his life for us. And he will keep that covenant. So that baptism then is more than even a sign. It's sealed by God's promise. And in that way becomes a means of grace. 
It's a spiritual means of comforting us. Comforting us with God's word and the sacrifice of Christ. It's God placing a wedding ring, so to speak, on our fingers. We, have, we who are married have a wedding ring. And it's a sign of the love of our spouse for us. And we look at that ring and we're reminded of that love. God says, here's a reminder of my love for you in baptism. Now it's important, again, to avoid the extremes. On the one hand, some say this sign is insignificant. It's not very important. It's rather vain. The Belgian Confession, Article 33, disputes that as the error of the Anabaptists and others. On the other hand, some would say there's power in the sacrament. And the sacrament itself accomplishes something when it's administered. Also, we reject that extreme. Faith is confirmed by the sacraments. That's what we believe. As the Confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 65, sets forth. The Catechism states, Christ adds there to this promise that I am as certainly washed by his blood and spirit from the pollution of my soul, that is, from all my sins, as I am externally washed with water. It's God's promise then, and God's seal comes to us this morning. And God assures us, by faith, of that certain wonder. And by faith, we lay hold upon that. A cleansing that's not based on my free will. A cleansing that was based on the sovereign will of God alone. A cleansing that's not based on my works, on my repentance, my my fleeing from sin. It's a cleansing that's based on God's goodness and God's mercy alone. And we lay hold on the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is one and the same. It's unconditional. It never fails to be realized in every last one of God's elect children. The promise of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And we find ourselves then living in thankfulness. What great things God has done for us. Struggles we experience. Trials are ours. We don't maintain our love for God as we should. We fail to maintain the demands of the covenant like we ought. God moves us to repentance. And God directs us to the cross and to the wonder of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a sign. You are forgiven despite your unfaithfulness. I am faithful. And I have taken you and consecrated you to myself with an everlasting covenant. God directs our focus to the newness of life that is ours. He directs our focus to the calling to go forward in his service, pursuing his will. And he strengthens us to live new godly lives in the midst of this world. We live in new obedience. We cling to him, knowing that we're never going to do so perfectly, but we trust in him. We love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We forsake the world. We crucify our old nature. And we walk in a new and a holy life. And again, though through weakness, sometimes we fall into sin, we don't despair of God's mercy. Nor do we continue in that sin. Because we have been delivered from it through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have been brought into an eternal covenant of grace with God. And faith lays hold on that wonder. Amen.